Welcome to Exploring Rural Health, a podcast from the Rural Health Information Hub. My name is Andrew Nelson, and in this podcast, we'll be talking with a variety of experts about providing rural health care, problems they've encountered, and ways in which those problems can be solved. This is the final episode of our three-part series about transportation in rural America. Joining us today is Dr. Alva Ferdinand. She's the director of the Southwest Rural Health Research Center. That center, funded by the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy, focuses on policy-relevant research on meeting the needs of rural populations, minority populations, and health disparities, including border health. Also joining us from the SRHRC is Dr. Marvelous Akinleton, where she is a research assistant professor. Now, you were both involved in researching and writing a policy brief entitled Rural Urban Variations in Travel Burdens for Care. So Dr. Kinleton, if I could ask you first, you spearheaded this project. Why was this something that you wanted to dig into and learn more about? Thank you, Andrew. Um, the last documentation of the national estimates for the travel distance and time for medical care using the National Household Travel Survey was done in year 2001. And so it was important to um, look into the data to provide, to provide current national estimates of the travel distance and time to medical or dental care and to determine what has changed over time, where the changes have occurred, and what groups have been mostly affected. Yeah, you know, I think that uh, in just looking at the literature, um, there were lots of studies sort of focusing on one particular disease, for example, cancer, or looking at different types of cancers and travel burden, um, for example, to radiation therapy um, or to other kinds of therapies for cancer related conditions. But just generally speaking, um, there wasn't a nationally representative study that had been done for a really long time. So I think that we were just curious to see, um, you know, in the grand scheme of things, what does travel burden look like uh, for rural residents and how does that compare to urban residents? And I think um, one of the nice things about uh, what we do in the center and, and academics across the country is to sort of look at what we already know, um, how old that data might be, and just work on uh, providing contemporary findings um, to sort of see how far we've come or not come. And I think that was um, one of the reasons that this was a really exciting project for us. Yeah, I can see how that could be kind of a secondary element of uh, rural health care that kind of gets overlooked. Providing the services are one thing, but people need to be able to get to the doctor as well. Uh, Dr. Akinleton, your research on travel burden built on information, as, as you said, from the mid-2000s about travel behaviors of rural and urban residents for those seeking health care. What have you found has changed since that time? Yes, um, so for this study, we looked at three years. Um, that's from the National Household Travel Survey. We looked at year 2001, year 2009, and year 2017. And those were the um, three most recent versions of that data set. Um, we looked at the travel time and distance among urban residents and among rural residents. 
And for urban residents, we found that the travel distance did not change significantly um, between 2001 and 2017. But for rural residents, the travel distance changed quite significantly. And so um, in 2001, rural residents were traveling about 15 miles to get care. Um, but in 2017, that number had risen up to 18 miles. And that was that change was statistically significant. Um, when we looked at the time, we did find that the travel time increased for both urban and rural residents. Um, so even though for those residing in urban areas, they didn't necessarily need to travel further, um, they still traveled longer. They still spent more time in their travels. And the same um, finding was made for rural residents as well. Um, when we also compared and looked at the rural-urban differences in the travel trends and found that compared to their urban counterparts, rural residents traveled seven miles farther for care in 2001, um, but that number increased to 10 miles in 2017. Um, also for travel time, rural residents traveled five more minutes to get care in 2001, but 10 more minutes um, in 2017. And so we found that the rural urban disparities widened over the study period. Another measure we looked at was the travel burden, and that was defined as the percentage of trips that lasted either 30 miles or 30 minutes. And we found that in rural areas, one in three trips for medical or dental care lasted, um, lasted 30 minutes or more in 2001. But in 2017, almost one in two trips for medical or dental care lasted more than 30 minutes. And so the travel burden increased substantially in um, rural areas as well. I think in thinking about rural residents, not as a monolith, but sort of understanding that there are different types of rural residents. Um, there are racial and, and ethnic uh, minorities. There are folks that are covered with different types of insurance plans, et cetera. One of the interesting things um, for me is just sort of seeing how for certain populations, subpopulations, the story hasn't gotten better for them either, um, despite what we've seen as an evolving uh, transportation system in the US uh, with respect to rideshare, et cetera. We're still seeing that minority populations, I think Blacks and Hispanics uh, in particular, are continuing to face uh, very significant travel burdens. Um, another um, thing that sort of popped out for me um, in reading the travel burden literature um, uh, comprehensively, it was sort of the, the burden that um, folks that are on public insurance, such as Medicaid and Medicare, um, also face in trying to seek care. Even though uh, the findings that Dr. Kimleton um, shared just now are really, really interesting for rural and hold true for the, the population at large, it's important to understand that, you know, when you see one rural community, you've seen one rural community, and that there are various subpopulations within rural um, that continue to face of substantial uh, travel burdens. And uh, Dr. Kinleton, you mentioned that this disparity had increased in the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, what causes were you able to identify for that disparity? So just looking at the data sets that we used, the causes weren't apparent, but we could look, we could look at our findings and also 
take a contextual look at what has been going on in rural areas to make sense of that finding. Uh, well, first, one of the causes we see would be the closure of rural hospitals. Um, from the um, data from the UNC Chef Center on rural hospital closures, say, um, let's just know that there were about 126 complete and partial rural hospital closures between 2005 and 2017. And so for residents who lived close to um, or in communities where there were hospital closures, you can imagine that they will, they will have had to travel even further um, to get care following the, the, the um, closure, whether it was full or partial. In addition to that, there have been fewer primary and specialty services available in rural areas over time. Um, and that has also meant that rural residents need, would need to travel even further. And the third um, cost or probable cost would be fewer options for public transportation. Um, as opportunities for public transportation continue to dwindle over time, um, those who had to rely on public transportation to get medical or dental care would have had to seek for other options, which may have um, translated into spending more time. Can you tell us a little bit about the rural experience of travel when people living in rural areas are seeking after-hours care? First aspect of the study we conducted that was the policy brief, we looked at um, characteristics of the trips made at night, and we found that um, rural trips that were made between midnight and 7 a.m. were 22 miles farther and 24 minutes longer than urban night trips. And so just looking at that tells us that there's a higher burden for rural residents who needed care in the middle of the night. There was no way to tell whether these trips were emergent or not, but one can infer that you know, traveling at 2 a.m. for care would be something that was at least pretty urgent, would be for a condition that was pretty urgent. And that also says that, uh, that also um, lets us know that emergency and urgent care centers were more likely to be located far, farther away in, um, in rural areas. And there might also be consequences associated with that. Um, we weren't able to capture that from our data, but for an individual who needed to get access to urgent care or emergency care, having to travel 22 miles farther or even 24 minutes longer, you know, it's one can only tell what um, consequences or what um, complications may have resulted from having to wait or, or traveled much longer just to get care in the middle of the night. I think that certainly we were limited in you know, what the data that we used um, could tell us, but I think in thinking about the literature in general, what we know is that when access is difficult um, for individuals, sometimes uh, what ends up happening is that they forego care. Um, so a condition that may not have escalated to the point of needing emergency care uh, at 2 a.m., um, for example, um, may have been mitigated if access was you know, somewhat better, um, a little bit easier to reach a primary care physician, for example, or perhaps even a specialty position, uh, physician, um, as the case might be. And so I think when we're thinking about those hours, um, 
not too many people would elect to go to find a physician at 2 a.m. as opposed to 3 p.m. or 11 a.m. for an outpatient visit. So what that sort of tells us is that there might be some foregone care and delayed care um, happening as well, such that when they do eventually um, need to seek care, the disease condition is, is much um, higher or more um, detrimental than perhaps it could have been if access to outpatient care was more readily available. Uh, you can definitely have kind of a domino effect, I suppose, with with uh, relatively trivial things becoming very serious just because of that impediment to access. Rural areas often don't have as many public transit options. How does that reliance on personal automobiles affect access to care? We know from the literature that nearly 4% of rural households which is almost 2 million rural residents, do not, have, do not have access to a car. And in addition to that, rural areas are also much less likely to have access to public transportation. And so in the light of this, they may be forced to rely on friends and family for transportation. Um, and without reliable options for transportation, the special populations such as um, older adults, those with disabilities, special needs, will be you know, particularly vulnerable to isolation. I mean, in addition to the foregone care, missed appointments, um, delayed care, they may also be um, vulnerable to isolation, which can also increase the risk of uh, morbidity and mortality. I think that, you know, in thinking about how transportation is evolving in general, uh, we've been talking quite a lot about autonomous vehicles and um, the impact that they might have in uh, reducing some disparities and inequities um, that we see throughout the country. And this might be uh, something that we think about and delve into uh, in the research as autonomous vehicles become um, a thing, uh, as it were. I think that um, ride share, certainly ride share and um, other types of transportation have uh, really evolved and come to be pretty commonplace um, in metropolitan areas of the United States. But I think there's certainly still a lag um, in these kinds of innovations um, for rural populations. And so I think it's going to be important for us to kind of see how the transportation uh, infrastructure evolves and how that impacts rural residents throughout the United States. Can you tell us a little bit about the financial impact of large distances that people need to traverse to get access to rural health care? For example, how gas prices might impact whether or not rural residents can get the care that they need? You know, our data showed that more than half of rural residents agreed or they strongly agreed that the price of gasoline affects their travel compared to just 45% of urban residents stating that the price of gasoline was a barrier to their travel. And one can also infer that with the higher travel burden, you know, just imagine one in two trips for medical or dental care taking up to 30 minutes or, um, or more than 30 miles, spending more than um, 30 miles to get to care, with that burden would also come the increased costs of gasoline. But um, from the literature, we know that compared to urban households, rural residents are less likely to reduce their travel 
when gasoline prices rise because they have less transit options and they have fewer um, they have less less access to rideshare services and so they have fewer opportunities to adapt their travel patterns so one can see that the financial impact is there and the price of gasoline is a problem but they are still less likely to reduce their travel just because of that because they have fewer options to to travel Beyond that, have you found that there are any particular groups of rural residents that are especially impacted by transportation challenges? There are two major groups that came to mind. The first group will be um, groups that have conditions that limit mobility. Um, those are more likely to be older adults, those with disabilities, um, spe- and special needs children, for example. And for older adults, definitely alleviating the burden of, of transportation will reduce the likelihood that they need to leave the communities where they live um, to get into long-term care. And improving transportation among that population would also reduce isolation and improve mental health. But apart from the special groups that we already mentioned, um, and Dr. Ferdinand um, mentioned this much earlier in the podcast, we also looked at the travel burden by race and ethnicity and found that over time, the travel time and distance increased disproportionately for Blacks and Hispanics. For example, the travel distance for rural Hispanics increased by 11 miles and 19 minutes in, 2000, in 2017 compared to 2001. And that was the highest increase of any of the other groups. There were also substantial increases for Blacks as well, um, whites, while the distance for whites didn't increase as much. And so this suggests that the increased travel burden that we are seeing among the rural populations over time, um, the brunt of that is being borne by the minority populations, particularly the rural Hispanics. So these, um, these groups are definitely more impacted by the transportation by transportation challenges and that's important to note so um you know what we know from the literature um, as i mentioned previously is that folks that are um, covered through public insurance um medicaid really stands out uh, because you know certainly uh the medicare program is sort of based, based on age and citizenship and that kind of thing but if you're covered on medicaid um it means that you're in the lower um, uh, income categories. And what we learned from our work is that if you make less than uh, $25,000 a year, that you were also more likely to have um, substantial travel burden associated with finding appropriate care um, for a health condition. So if we sort of think about, um, you know, the, the jobs that are tied to um, that bracket of salary, um, there's probably less flexibility. Um, you're probably, you know, not necessarily um, able to work from home. Um, so if we're thinking about the pandemic, for example, you might actually have uh, higher exposure uh, to infectious disease uh, such as COVID-19 and really not much of a choice in terms of uh, getting childcare or arranging um, for um, transportation, uh, like with an Uber or renting a car for a day, for example, those options are, are very limited if, if you happen to be in that um, income category. What are some potential solutions to address these rural travel burdens? Well, the first is telehealth. 
increasing access to telehealth, particularly, I mean, for the the entire rural population, but particularly for the minority population, and adapting it in such a way that it, you know it can be used by them um, is critical. Providing travel discounts so that individuals who need to travel and have cost as a barrier are able to overcome that is another potential solution. Um, Ride-sharing services, I know there are currently programs in different pockets of the country that want to use um, ride-sharing platforms such as Uber or Lyft to um, improve travel specifically for medical care. Um, Another important solution is bringing increasing access to primary care. Um, in, the, in the literature, there was a study done some time ago that I think this was a qualitative study. And it was like the rural residents saying, okay, we get it if we need to travel further for specialty care, but for primary care, which is what we need on a fairly consistent basis, it's important that that is close by. Um, and I know Dr. Ferdinand still in our lines here, but she would often say rural residents sometimes don't, they just want to see someone in white coat. <laughs> you know, someone who, whether a nurse practitioner, someone who has some qualification and can address their health conditions, if that's available at the primary level, that, I mean, that is a good solution. That's, a, um, that's an important solution. And then they know that for specialty care, um, the potential for further travel is still is welcome. Dr. Ferdinand, you've already mentioned mm-hmm. uh, one possible solution to the rural health care burden that I thought was very interesting, and that was autonomous vehicles. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, certainly. So um, I know at Texas A&M University, uh, we have a, a Texas Transportation Institute um, which uh, does a lot of testing on auto- autonomous vehicles. I think we have a few buses on campus that are running and folks are being invited to, to try those out. So um, I think that, you know, having a personal vehicle um, has been shown in our work um, to be a barrier to accessing uh, healthcare. But I think that to the extent that there are, um, for example, fleets of autonomous vehicles that can be dispatched uh, to rural and remote areas, that might be something that policymakers um, try to invest in in the future. I think we're currently seeing lots of investments on the telehealth um, side of things, um, which is pretty interesting because I think that while Um, Telehealth is welcome uh, by uh, lots of urban and maybe even millennial uh, individuals. I think that we need to do a little bit more digging on how acceptable uh, telehealth services are to rural residents. I think we are making lots of investments uh, in that infrastructure, but I think that there's a level of comfort um, that has to go hand in hand with that modality for care. Um, and I think that's something that we need to um, explore a little bit more. Uh, and just thinking about my parents, um, for example, um, you know, older um, patients, older uh, generations might actually wanna see a human being in person. Um, and so telehealth for them may not be something that they 
immediately think of as an alternative to, you know, getting in a car and driving to uh, access care. So I think um, telehealth uh, certainly is uh, one potential solution. I think autonomous vehicles, as they begin to roll out, like I said, I think that we can um, think about it more broadly than, you know, just an individual buying a, a, an autonomous vehicle because they don't want to have to uh, spend the cognitive uh, load on driving. I think that we can even now begin to creatively think about how we can leverage autonomous vehicles in a way that really benefits rural residents in the U.S. That's really interesting. Uh, we often think of autonomous vehicles as being kind of luxury things for for wealthy people, but it's interesting to consider the benefits that kind of technology could have for people on the other end of the economic spectrum. We're wrapping things up here. Um, I'll ask you first, Dr. Kinleton. Um, do you have anything lined up for your research center in terms of further considering the issue of rural travel burdens? Yes, going forward, um, in the light of the current expansion of telehealth, we would like to see how, for example, how different racial groups are responding to the increased uptake of telehealth, um, particularly as we found in our study, rural Hispanics um, and rural Black residents, and of course, rural whites as well. Just wanted to see how, whether there's a racial variation in the uptake of rural health, I'm sorry, excuse me, telehealth. Um, and then one aspect we couldn't delve into as I said earlier, was whether the travel burden differed by the type of care that was sought. So primary care, we wanted to know, you know, we will want to know in the future, what is, what is the average time and travel, and what is the average travel distance and time to get primary care compared to specialty care? Because in this data set, everything was lumped together. And then for those with different types of insurance coverage, what are the variations um, those who have Medicaid, I mean, we can already, we can suspect that those who um, are covered by Medicaid are more likely to travel further, but you know, we would like to have more hard evidence on that. And then look at those who are covered by travel, sorry, by private insurers, what is the travel distance? Rural residents are more likely to be older. So we want to know the travel distance among those who are covered by Medicare and how that also impacts their care. So just looking at these same measures by um, other metrics, such as insurance status, um, that the type of care sought will be um, important for future research. Again, just thinking about the literature in general, there's lots of uh, studies on you know, travel burden associated with cancer um, and different types of cancer, colorectal, uterine, um, et cetera. I am particularly curious about the travel burden associated with other kinds of conditions, um, some of the ones that kind of float to the top in the US. Um, so diabetes uh, comes to mind, heart disease, um, uh, let's see, um, uh, COPD, for example. I just wonder um, for folks that have those particular conditions, what the travel burden looks like. And I think you know, to Marvelous's point earlier, I think um, certainly access to primary care is gonna help with some of that. Um, and so 
what we know is that in the primary care setting, you can kind of get some information and counseling on lifestyle changes that might uh, help with those particular uh, conditions. Um, and so if we're um, continuing to see that the burden of uh, travel associated with getting uh, treatment for those kinds of conditions also remains high. I think that tells us that we have uh, an opportunity to, to really try to, to work on this so that when we're thinking about healthy people, for example, the initiative uh, set out by Health and Human Services to reduce uh, certain um, benchmarks or to, to meet certain benchmarks for reductions in certain diseases. I think that it's, it's more than, um, you know, what new drugs can we come up with? It's more than, um, you know, how many more providers can we put in certain places? It's also about looking at the transportation burden as it currently is, and really trying to think creatively about how to reduce that burden um, so that the, the gaps that we see in meeting healthy people benchmarks aren't as wide as they currently are. Um, and so I'm sort of excited um, to look into that. I know that that's something, um, the, the leading causes of death is something that our center um, tries to look at very closely. Um, and I think that providing some recommendations um, and thinking about transportation as, a, as an important piece of that is also gonna be um, something that we'll look at in the future. I think it might also be um, interesting to look at potentially avoidable um, hospitalizations uh, for things like ambulatory care sensitive conditions. So again, those conditions that could be managed pretty well in an outpatient setting. I think that as we're trying to work on these issues of travel burden and um, trying to reduce them, I think that we should also be looking to see how those efforts play into uh, reducing unnecessary um, care in emergency departments, for example, which um, we know is uh, substantially more expensive <laughs> to obtain than uh, care that you would otherwise have gotten in an outpatient setting. So I think for me, if I'm thinking futuristically, I'd wanna see um, how efforts in our travel burden reductions translate into outcomes in the uh, emergency department setting, um, as an example. You've been listening to Exploring Rural Health, a podcast from RHI Hub. Today we spoke to Dr. Alva Ferdinand and Dr. Marvelous Akinleton from the Southwest Rural Health Research Center. Look in our show notes for more information about their work and visit ruralhealthinfo.org for all things pertaining to rural health. Join us next time for a discussion about palliative care here on Exploring Rural Health.